0: Welcome to the Powers Report podcast. I am your host, Janice Powers. The show brings you candid, unique, and data-driven perspectives on the healthcare industry. I believe that any solution that is going to positively impact the American healthcare system has to satisfy two major criteria, financial viability and behavioral incentive alignment. In other words, access to high-quality care can only be achieved if we can afford it and if we behave in ways that optimize our health. Please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app and connect with us on social media. Again, this is Janice Powers, and welcome to the Powers Report podcast. This is the second in a series about consumerism in healthcare. In the last show, I talked about how a good chunk of the money-saving ideas in healthcare We're aimed at lowering costs for your employer, the insurance company, or the government. That's not saving money for you, the consumer, because you don't see those savings in your wallet. In this episode, I'll talk about the challenges of consumerization in healthcare as it relates to how people behave. Two factors, healthcare literacy and moral hazard, will be discussed in the context of two ways people can save money on healthcare. First and foremost, anyone who claims that they're going to help consumers lower their health care costs has to account for the fact that the bulk of these costs are paid in fixed monthly premiums. These premiums run in the hundreds, if not for larger families and older folks, thousands of dollars a month. We need to put savings in perspective. It's kind of ridiculous to expect people to do backflips because they've saved $15 on a prescription when they're paying $600 a month for health insurance. I've been asked if my company is going to help people figure out how to shop for health insurance. My answer is always an emphatic no. I presume these individuals ask me the question because they recognize that premiums are significant monthly fixed costs. They figure there must be a way to get an inside track to finding lower premiums. Well, not really. First of all, if you're getting your insurance through your employer, which is how most people get it, Your employer has already whittled down the options for you. You choose from the plan selected by them. On the plus side, your employer is contributing a lot towards your insurance coverage, so that's something to be grateful for. That being said, most people who buy insurance on the exchange receive a government subsidy to do so. They have more choice because they get to pick from different plans. But then again, the coverage is probably not as generous as it is in many employer-sponsored plans. You're probably aware that the Affordable Care Act mandates that most insurance plans have to cover an expansive array of benefits. That's been a contributing factor to healthcare premiums rising since the ACA was implemented. One way around paying for one of these bloated plans and thereby lowering your premium payments is to buy a short-term plan. They last about six months and they need to be renewed. You have to qualify for the coverage and a lot of pre-existing conditions might exclude you from getting approved. These plans cover almost nothing that you'd use on a primary care basis. However, if you're not on major medications and or you don't expect to have any major medical expenses, and most importantly, you're willing to take the risk, a short-term plan could be a cost-saving stopgap for a while. There are other funky options that have been authorized by the Trump administration. Small groups can come together and create their own plans, and these can be cheaper, but they're not national plans. By their nature, the groups coming together are local or regional at best, so it's really hard to shop. I love alternative insurance options. You just have to be somewhat in the know to participate in one of these plans. And again, there are disqualifiers unique to each of them. One of the biggest problems in trying to find ways to lower insurance premiums is that people can lose sight of value. Just because something costs less doesn't mean that it's better. Some people are willing to pay over a thousand dollars for the latest phone because they see value in it. Others will get a cheaper version of the same phone because they don't care about status and they don't need all the bells and whistles that the latest product has to offer. We know the healthcare industry makes it really hard to discern value because the terms of insurance plans are so hard to understand. Further, most of us can't predict what we might need in a given year which further challenges us to make an informed value-based decision i'd argue that the most important decision you can make when shopping for health insurance isn't the amount of the monthly premium it is whether the physician you like is covered under the plan you're shopping for that way you know what you're getting you have a relationship with this person they have your medical history the staff knows you all of these things help make your healthcare experience better all of these things make you more health literate. That's why saving yourself $50 a month or even a few hundred dollars a month in exchange for cutting yourself off from your healthcare network is just not worth it. Why? If you don't have a trusted provider, you'll be less likely to seek medical care. Being sick is hard physically and emotionally. The idea of starting anew when you're at your most vulnerable is hard for anyone. What if this new doctor recommends something you don't think you need? Will you have the confidence to discuss it with them? What if the provider has a nurse call you with the recommendations? It's much harder to ask for explanations over the phone from someone who may simply be relaying messages. And that may be the point. The new doctor may not wanna talk to you. You just don't know. This trust issue gets to the heart of one of the reasons why the consumerization of healthcare is so difficult. Doctor-patient relationships have slipped precipitously over the past few decades. Back in the day, the health maintenance organization, HMO, concept was designed to address this issue. The primary care doctor was supposed to coordinate all the care needs of the patient. That meant that in order to see a specialist, you had to see your primary care doctor first. Well, people didn't like that. It was inconvenient. took too much time. So the model shifted, and some insurers allowed patients to go directly to specialists. In some cases, it is more expedient but this approach has contributed to the disintegration of coordinated care and that's led to poor outcomes for too many people. Some people like the freedom of picking their own specialist, but they may not be using the right criteria to do it. Some patients are seeking out providers not based on what a trusted referring doctor might say, but on market-based crowdsourced metrics like Yelp or online reviews. These reviews are notoriously flawed Amazon has a chronic problem with product reviews on its site because they're not posted by real customers. And let's face it, social media has the ability to skew perception. If a patient with a huge social media following has a less than perfect experience with a doctor, that physician could get flooded with terrible reviews posted by people he or she has never met. Why? Because the doctor was 10 minutes late for an appointment? Or because the doctor inadvertently removed the wrong kidney. Social media doesn't care, you should. I'm not downplaying the role of technology in helping advance the healthcare industry. My company is developing tools to help patients navigate the system because there are so many unknowns and there are plenty of self-diagnosing tools available. Many believe the vast majority of care will become automated, fine, good. But healthcare is about humans. Robots can't give you a hug. I think the best healthcare consumers are the ones who understand this. They will take the time to look behind price and see what kind of health care they're going to get when they buy. This should save money because these individuals are receiving preventive care coaching, seeking out care when they need it, and challenging doctors to prescribe only what's needed to best position the patient to be as healthy as they can be. The unfortunate reality is that most people are not like this. They're not prepared to make wise decisions in spending their healthcare dollars, which brings me to the second challenge to healthcare consumerism, moral hazard. In discussing healthcare literacy, I talked about the importance of looking beyond lowering premium prices when selecting a health plan. Yet there's another way to lower your premiums, and that's to go with a high deductible health plan. In exchange for lower monthly premiums, you pay a higher deductible. A high deductible health plan may be good for you for the same reasons that a short-term plan can work, If you're relatively healthy and don't expect major medical expenses, a high deductible health plan may be for you. On the plus side, it is less risky than a short-term plan because your coverage is going to be broader. The high deductible health plan covers a lot of the basic primary care stuff, so you won't have to pay out of pocket for it. Another benefit is that you qualify to open a health savings account or an HSA. I did a whole podcast on the glories of HSAs last year. HSAs are great because you can put a certain amount of money into a personal financial account pre-tax. Many employers contribute to employee HSA accounts too. You can use the HSA money on qualified medical expenses, just like a flexible spending account. However, if you don't use all the money in your HSA, it stays in the account. In the flexible spending account, you lose the money. Further, if your HSA is structured properly, you should be earning interest on the balances in the account. There's no tax on that investment income, which is another benefit. And then you can use the money for Medicare premiums later on. At one point, my company was going to go to market as an HSA. The benefits are wonderful on paper. Then we started to talk to people who were enrolled in them. While the HSA seems like it is a consumer product, it really isn't. Over three quarters of new HSA accounts were generated through an employer for the first half of 2020. There are some great companies that market directly to individuals, but the HSA product is somewhat complex to understand and only a sliver of people qualify for them. Again, to qualify, you must have a high deductible health plan. You have to have the money to put in the HSA and you have to not use the HSA from your employer if the employer offers one. I love the product, but we didn't think it was a worthwhile venture for us. We also learned that HSA owners seem to fall into two buckets. At one end of the spectrum are the people who maximize the contribution levels for the HSA every year and then don't spend it. They use it strictly as an investment account. These folks have the money to pay out of pocket for their medical expenses rather than drawing down funds from the HSA account. Their view, and it is legit, is that they'd rather keep the money in the account and have it earn interest over decades rather than get the tax-free benefit in the short term. Actually, they can have both because HSA holders can save their receipts and then claim the expenses many years later after the account has generated investment income that can theoretically fund the old medical expenses. So I wasn't kidding when I said these things are kind of complicated. Interestingly, there's been a big push recently to promote HSAs strictly as an investment vehicle. In fact, half of employers are positioning the HSA as a retirement savings vehicle not a health savings vehicle. Now I can see why an HSA company would do this. The longer the funds stay under their management, the more money they can make. Yet in theory, the HSA was started to help people save on their healthcare expenses, not to have another tax advantage investment account. Which brings me to the other set of people using HSAs. The folks who put money in the fund or have their employer do so because the tax benefits are so great, but then they don't use it on healthcare and they don't use their own money on healthcare. They're on a high deductible health plan, so they want to avoid engaging with the healthcare system because they risk having to pay for the care out of pocket. Sure, the HSA was designed to help mitigate that problem, but since no one knows what kind of a bill they're gonna get stocked with, some folks would rather avoid care altogether and put away whatever money they can in case something really bad happens. The problem is so pervasive that the Trump administration had to pass a law requiring insurers who offer high-deductible health plans with an HSA to cover insulin. They did this because diabetics liked having lower premiums with high-deductible health plans, but they didn't pay out of pocket for the medications they needed. Imagine you're one of these folks who's on this kind of plan with an employer-sponsored HSA. You actually have the cash to spend on your medical needs, which was the point of employers setting these things up in the first place, but then you don't use it for something so basic like insulin. This is the moral hazard problem. If people are empowered to make healthcare decisions, are they going to make the right ones? If they don't, and they get very sick and they can't afford their medical care, then it becomes everyone else's problem. There are many Americans that do not take care of themselves today. Some do it by choice. They simply don't care and aren't willing to make the effort to be healthy. Other folks are impacted by circumstances out of their control, like poor education, poor public health in the community where they live, mental health issues, cultural behaviors that reinforce negative health habits, the list goes on. I'd argue in most cases, poor health status is a combination of both controllable and uncontrollable factors. That's why it's hard for one American to trust another American to spend their health care dollars responsibly, How can we believe consumerization in healthcare is going to work if we have a subset of the population that is relatively unhealthy, which cannot and or will not spend the money responsibly? One thing we've heard over and over with the COVID-19 pandemic is that the healthcare system is inequitable. People of color, people who have lower incomes, people who are less educated, these folks are suffering from the virus more than anyone else. This is a tragic situation. But I think the root cause of it is income inequality. I truly believe that in America, money transcends race and education in leading to a better life. It is the great equalizer. The same is true in health care. The more money you have, the better health care you're going to get. This has been a notorious problem with Medicaid, the government health program for the poor. Medicaid's reimbursement rates are so low that some doctors refuse to take Medicaid patients. With fewer people accepting the insurance, it's harder to get in to see a doctor in the first place. Wait times are longer. Longer wait times can exacerbate health conditions. Further, these Medicaid patients don't get the choice of doctors that other people may have. They can't create that patient-provider relationship that fosters health literacy the same way other folks can. That puts them at a distinct disadvantage. Many people see this income inequality issue as a major challenge to bringing consumerism to healthcare. I don't. Americans have rejected the single-payer option, and with good reason. We are too big and way too diverse to have a one-size-fits-all healthcare system. Most importantly, we've seen a failure of Congress to act cooperatively for decades. Both political parties are at fault. We can't implement policies promoted by what one-half of Americans want, only to have these policies shredded by what the other half of Americans want. Having policymakers dictate our healthcare system has failed. It's time for the market to take over. In the short term, and by that I mean at least this decade, the government should focus on fixing Medicaid and Medicare. I've got suggestions. One of my favorite podcasts is all about ideas on how to fix Medicaid. There are a lot of great things that can and should be done to this critical program that serves one in five Americans. In the meantime, we need the Americans on private insurance to start market testing some consumer-based healthcare ideas. Early adapters are more risk-loving and are willing to spend money to try new, new things. The first iterations of new products oftentimes aren't in the price range of all Americans. They can't be. They're experimental. Consumers tell the companies what they like and don't like about the products. Companies adjust and get better at making the product. More people buy it it gets cheaper, then everyone can afford it. We need the government to give consumers protection, to do oversight that makes sure patients are safe. We need the government's guidance. That's different from running everything. If the government wants to run everything, they should prove that they can by cleaning up their own house and fixing Medicaid and Medicare. Until then, we entrepreneurs are going to take our ideas to market so we can help Americans be as healthy as they can be. This is the Powers Report podcast. Please subscribe to our show and follow me, Janice Powers, on social media. Please see our website at powersreportpodcast.com to submit questions and ideas. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks so much for listening.